Chapter 6 of Topsy Turvy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bren Phillips. Topsy Turvy by Jules Verne. Translated by Anonymous. Chapter 6. In which a telephone communication between Mrs. Scorbitt and J.T. Maston is interrupted. President Barbicane was not only convinced that he would reach his object when the amount which had been raised took another obstacle out of his way. Had he not been perfectly sure of success, he would not have made an application for a public subscription. And now the time had come when the North Pole would be conquered. It was felt certain that President Barbicane and his council of administration had means to succeed where so many others had failed. They would do what neither Franklin, nor Kane, nor DeLong, nor Nears, nor Greeley had been able to accomplish. They would pass the 84th parallel, they would take possession of the vast region purchased at an auction sale, they would make this country the 39th star in the flag of the American Union. Fake was all that the European delegates and their friends in the old world could say. Nothing was more true, however, and this practical, logical means of conquering the North Pole, which was so simple that it was almost childish, was one which J.T. Maston had suggested to them. It was that brain, where ideas were constantly evolving, which had laid out this great geographical project in a way which could not but succeed. It cannot be too often repeated that the secretary of the gun club was a remarkable calculator. We might say a postgraduate calculator. But a single day was needed by him to solve the most complicated problems in mathematical science. He laughed at these difficulties, whether in algebra or in plain mathematics. You should have seen him handle his figures, the signs which make up algebra, the letters in the alphabet, representing the unknown quantities, the square or crossed lines representing the way in which quantities are to be operated. All signs and lines and radicals in this complex language were perfectly familiar to him, and how they flew around under his pen, or rather under the piece of chalk which he attached to his iron hand because he preferred to work on a blackboard. And this blackboard, six feet square, this was all he wanted. He was perfectly at home in his work, nor was it figures alone which he used in his calculations. His figures were fantastic, gigantic, written with a practiced hand. His two and three were as nice and as round as they could be. His seven looked like a crutch and almost invited a person to hang on it. His eight was as well formed as a pair of eyeglasses, and the letters with which he established his formulas, the first of the alphabet, A, B, C, which he used to represent given or known quantities, and the last, X, Y, Z, which he used for unknown quantities to be discovered particularly the Z, and those Greek letters, Delta, Omega, Alpha. Really, an Archimedes might have been well proud of them. And those other signs, made with a clean hand and without fault, it was simply astonishing. His plus sign showed well that his sign meant an addition of one object to the other. His minus sign, if it was a little smaller, was also in good shape. His equal sign, too, showed that Mr. Matson lived in a country where equality was not a vain expression, at least amongst the people of the white race just as well were his greater than sign, and his less than sign, and his double colon, used in expressing proportions. And the radical, which indicated the root of a certain number or quantity, it was to him a mark of triumph, and when he completed it with a horizontal line along the top, it seemed as if this outline on his blackboard would compel the whole world to submit to his figuring. But do not think that Mr. J.T. Maston's mathematical intelligence was confined to elementary algebra. No. No matter what figuring he had to do, it was alike familiar to him, and with a practiced hand he made all the signs and figures, and even did not hesitate at an integral sign, which looks very simple, 
but behind which lays a great deal of calculation. The same with the sine sigma, which represents the sum of a finished number. Also the sine infinity, by which the mathematicians designate the incomplete, and all those mysterious symbols which are used in this language, and which are unknown to the common people. This astonishing man was able to do anything even in the very highest grades of mathematics. Such was J.T. Maston. And therefore it was that his associates had such perfect confidence in him when he set out to figure the most difficult problems in his audacious brain. This it was which led to the gun club to trust him with the difficult problem of sending a projectile to the moon. And this was why Mrs. Evangelina Scorbitt, jealous of his fame, felt for him an admiration which ended in love. In this present case, that is, how to solve the conquering of the North Pole, J.T. Maston had but to begin to think and dream himself into the Arctic regions. To reach the solution, the secretary had but to undertake certain mathematical problems, very complicated perhaps, but over which, in all cases, he would come out ahead. It was safe to trust Mr. J.T. Maston, even where the smallest and simplest mistake would have meant a loss of millions. Never, since the time his useful brain began to think of mathematics, had he committed a mistake. Not even one of a thousandth of an inch. In his calculations were made up the length of an object. If he had made a mistake of only the smallest amount, he would have torn his gutta-percha cap from his head. Now let us see him while engaged in his calculations, and for this purpose we must go back a few weeks. It was about a month before the publication of the circular addressed to the inhabitants of the old and new worlds that Mr. Maston had undertaken to figure out the elements of a scheme in which he had promised to his associates the greatest success. For a number of years, Mr. Maston had lived at number 179 Franklin Street, one of the most quiet streets in Baltimore, far away from the center of business, for which he did not care anything, far away from the noise of the great crowd which disgusted him. There he occupied a modest little house, known by the name of Ballistic Cottage. Having for his income only his pension allowed to him as a retired officer of artillery, and the salary which he received as secretary of the gun club, he lived alone, served by his negro, Firefire. This negro was not an ordinary servant. He was rather an appreciative friend, and treated his master as if he were his own brother. Mr. Maston was a decided bachelor having an idea that being a bachelor was the only sensible way of living in the present world. He knew the proverb, a woman can draw more with one hair than four oxen at the plow, and he disproved it. If he had occupied his cottage alone, it was only because he wished to do so. We know that he only had to make the motion to change his solitude of one to a company of two, and his small income to an income of a millionaire. He did not doubt it. Mrs. Evangelina Scorbitt would have been only too happy to. But up to this time, Mr. Matson had not been happy to. And it seems certain that these two beings, so well made for the other, at least this was the opinion of the tender widow, would never reach the transformation period. The cottage was a simple one. A ground floor, with a veranda and a floor over it, a small parlor and dining room, with a kitchen and another room in an outbuilding stand at the back of the garden. Upstairs, his sleeping room and his working studio looked on the garden and where the noise of the outer world could never penetrate. Within these walls there had been made calculations which would have made Newton, Euclid, or Laplace jealous. How different was the mansion of Mrs. Evangelina Scorbitt, situated in the richest quarter of New Park, with façade of balconies, finished in the finest architecture, half Romanesque, half Gothic, with its richly furnished apartments, its grand halls, its picture galleries, in which French artists held the highest places, its magnificent staircase, its great number of domestics, its stables, its coach-houses, 
its garden with the finest of flowers statues fountains and the tower on top of the building on which the blue and gold coat of arms of the scorbitt family was upon a glittering banner three miles three long miles at least separated the palace at new park from the ballistic cottage but a private telephone wire connected there and in answer to hello hello a conversation could be carried on between the mansion and cottage if the persons could not look at each other they could at least hear each other it will astonish none to hear that time upon time mrs scorbitt began talking and ringing on the telephone to mr maston when he was busily engaged with his figures then the calculator had to quit his work with some reluctance he received a friendly how do you do from mrs scorbitt which he answered with a grunt which was sweetened into a kindly greeting by the distance over the telephone after a conversation he was glad to go back to his figures it was the third of december after a long and last conference that mr maston took leave of his friends and members of the club to begin to do his share of the work it was a very important work with which he had charged himself for it was the question of figure mechanical appliance which would enable him to gain access to the north pole and which would allow him to make use of those large fields of snow now covered with impenetrable ice he estimated that he needed at least a week to accomplish this mysterious calculation exceedingly complicated and delicate to handle involving several deep and important problems therefore to avoid all unnecessary annoyance it had been decided that the secretary of the gun club should retire to his cottage and that he should not be disturbed by any one this was a great disappointment for mrs evangelina scorbitt but she was compelled to accept it while president barbicane captain nicholl and his associates the jolly billsby colonel bloomsbury tom hunter with his wooden legs were all saying their good-byes to him and wishing him success mrs evangelina scorbitt appeared and made her last visit to mr maston you will succeed my dear she said at the moment of separation and above all do not make a mistake added president barbicane a mistake he exclaimed mrs scorbitt no more than god has made a mistake in putting together this world modestly answered the secretary then after shaking hands all around and after a few more sighs and wishes of success and suggestions not to make too severe a work of it the calculator was left alone the door of the ballistic cottage was closed and firefire had orders to admit none not even if the president of the united states should ask admission during his first two days of seclusion j t maston thought and thought without even touching the piece of chalk upon the problem which he had taken on himself he consulted certain books relative to the elements the earth its size its thickness its volume its form its rotation upon its axis all elements which he had to use as the basis of his calculations the principles of these elements which he used and which we put before the reader were as follows form of the earth an ellipsis of revolution the longest radius of which is six million three hundred seventy seven thousand three hundred ninety eight meters the shortest six million three hundred fifty six thousand eighty meters the circumference of the earth at the equator forty thousand kilometers surface of the earth approximate estimate five hundred and ten million of square kilometers bulk of the earth about one thousand millards of cubic kilometers that is a cube having a meter in length height and thickness density of the earth about five times that of water time of the earth on the orbit around the sun three hundred sixty five days six hours nine minutes ten seconds thirty seven centimes this gives the globe a speed of thirty thousand four hundred miles traveled over by the rotation of the earth upon its axis for a point of its surface situated at the equator four hundred sixty three meters per second these were the principal measures of space time bulk etc which mr maston used in his calculations it was the fifth of october about five o'clock in the afternoon it is important to mention 
When this remarkable work was begun, when J.T. Maston began to work upon it, he began his calculation with a diagram representing the circumference of the Earth around one of its grand circles, say the equator. The blackboard was there, in a corner of his study upon a polished oak easel, with good light shining on it, coming by one of the windows nearby. Small pieces of chalk were on the board attached to the stand. The sponge was near the hand of the calculator. His right hand, or rather his right hook, was all ready for the placing of figures which he was going to use. Standing up, Mr. Maston had a large round circle, which represented the world. The equator he marked by a straight line. Then in the right corner of the blackboard he began to put the figures which represented the circumference of the earth. Forty million. This done, he began figuring on his problem. He was so much occupied by it that he had not observed the weather without. For an hour a storm had raved through the country which affected all living beings. It was a terrific storm. The rain was falling in torrents. Everything seemed turned upside down in nature. Two or three times lightning had illuminated the scene around him. But the mathematician, more and more absorbed in his work, saw and heard nothing. Suddenly an electric bolt, attracted by the lightning outside, sparkled in his room. And this disturbed the calculator. Well, said Mr. Maston, if unwelcome visitors cannot get in by the door, they come by telephone. A nice invention for people who wish to be left alone. I will go to work and cut off the electric wire, so I will not be disturbed again while my figuring lasts. With this, he went to the telephone and said sternly, Who wants to talk to me? Just make it short. The reply came back. Did you not recognize my voice, my dear Mr. Maston? It is I, Mrs. Scorbitt. Mrs. Scorbitt, she will never give me a moment's rest uttered Mr. Maston to himself in a low voice that she could not hear. Then he thought he could at least answer her in a polite manner, and said, Oh, is that you, Mrs. Scorbitt? Yes, my dear Mr. Maston. And what can I do for you, Mrs. Scorbitt? asked Maston. I want to tell you that a terrible storm and lightning is destroying a large part of our city. Well, he replied, I cannot help it. But I wanted to ask whether you have thought to close your windows. Mrs. Scorbitt had hardly finished her sentence when a terrible thunderbolt struck the town. It struck the neighborhood of the ballistic cottage, and the electricity, passing along the wire with which the telephone was provided, threw the calculator to the floor with a terrible force. J.T. Maston made the best somersault he ever did in his life. His metal hook had touched the live wire, and he was thrown down like a shuttlecock. The blackboard, which he had struck in his fall, was sent flying to another part of the room. Then the electricity passed into other objects and disappeared through the floor. The stupefied Mr. Maston got up and touched the different parts of his body to assure himself that he was not hurt internally. This done, he resumed his cold, calculating way. He picked everything up in his room, put it in the same place where it had been before, and put his blackboard on the easel, picked up small pieces of chalk, and began again his work, which had been so suddenly interrupted. He noticed that on account of the fall, the number which had been made on the right side of the blackboard was partly erased, and he was just about to replace it when his telephone again rang with a loud noise. Again, said J.T. Maston, and going to the telephone he exclaimed, Who is there? Mistress Scorbitt. And what does Mrs. Scorbitt want? Did not this terrible thunderbolt strike Ballistic Cottage? I have good reason to think so. Ah, great God the thunderbolt. Don't be alarmed, Mrs. Scorbitt. You have not been injured, Mr. Maston? Not at all, he replied. You are sure you have no injuries whatever? said the lady. I am only touched by your kindness towards me replied Mr. Maston, thinking it the best way to answer. "'Good evening, dear Mr. Maston.' "'Good evening, dear Mrs. Scorbitt.' Returning to his work, Mr. Maston said, Sato voce, "'To the devil with her. If she had not handled the telephone at such a time, I would never have run the risk of being hurt by electricity.' 
Mr. Maston did not wish to be interrupted in his work again, and so took down his telephone and cut the wire. Then taking again as basis the figure which he had written, he added different formulas of it, and finally a certain formula which he had written on his left side, and then he began to figure in all the language of algebra. A week later, on the 11th of October, this magnificent calculation was finished, and the secretary of the gun club brought his solution of the problem with great pride and satisfaction to the members of the gun club, who were awaiting it with very natural impatience. This, then, was the practical way to get to the North Pole mathematically discovered. Here was also a society under the name of the NPPA, to which the government of Washington had accorded a clear title of the Arctic region in case they should buy it on auction. And we have told of the purchase made in favor of American buyers, and of the appeal for a subscription of $15 million. End of chapter 6